0: Well, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems like we live in a time in which people get really easily offended. And in this time where people are easily offended, it's it's a little bit different than what I remember or what I've heard about times in the past in that I uh, used to in the past, it seemed like when people were offended that you could still have a conversation with them and you could still be friends with them and have some sort of relationship with them. But it seems nowadays that if We have a disagreement with somebody that that means we're mortal enemies now and we can't have relationships or friends with them. But is that really what it's called to be? Is that really what it's supposed to be in the church? Right. Like if if we have disagreements with one another in the church, are we called to then separate ourselves from each other because of those disagreements? I mean, You can go on any sort of social media with Twitter, Facebook, whatever. and You're going to see somebody griping about something that somebody else did to offend them, whether it really affects them or not. You are going to see those things. And if we're not careful, we might start bringing that same type of attitude into a church, into a a local body of believers where uh, what we think and what we say and what we do might be offensive to somebody else. Or we may be offended by what somebody thinks, says, does, wears, whatever it may be. But it, how, how do we respond to being offended? How do we respond, respond to people doing things that may upset us? And another way we might put that is how do we live out our faith even if we're irritated or offended by what somebody says or does? How do we still live out our faith, specifically in the context of a local church? But really this passage and what we're going to look at today While it's talking about in the context of a local church, these principles are going to help you to be able to live amongst people you disagree with, even outside the church, and still be able to show the love of Christ and live out your faith, even in those situations. Because the truth of the matter is, I'm going to offend somebody sometimes, you're going to offend somebody sometimes. And we're all going to be offended by something at some point or another. We're going to get irritated. We're going to get upset. So how do we live out our faith, even when we are, are sometimes irritated, or even when we sometimes irritate or offend somebody else? I, I think one of the things we need to remember is that a, a church is made up of people, and people are not perfect. In fact, people are what sinners. We're sinners. If we if we trust Christ, we're sinners saved by grace, but we're still sinners. And so as Christians, if we follow Christ, God is in the process of making us new. He's transforming us, but we still have this battle with sin in our life. And anytime you get a group of sinners together, you're going to sometimes have conflict. You're going to sometimes have offenses that are done. And so we need to understand what the Bible says about living out our faith And being able to handle conflict in a way that honors God and loves our neighbor. And that's what Paul is addressing in this passage that we're going to look at today in Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6. He is addressing and urging the Christians there to live out their faith, to walk in a way that God has called them to in the context of the local church. And he tells them the way they live out their faith in the church is to maintain the unity that God has already established. And so before we dive into this passage, let's go to the Lord and ask him for help this morning as we look at his word. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us, that we may know you and know what you require of us. And so, Father, as we look at your word, we pray that you will help us to understand how this relates to our life. Father, that you would use your word to strengthen our faith. And Father, if there's anyone here that does not follow you, that you would use your, your word to show them the truth of the gospel and bring them to yourself. Father, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. And so we, we see in this passage, what I want us to understand in this passage is since Christians have been united with one another by the gospel, by the grace of God, that we should and we can seek to maintain unity in the church. Seek to maintain unity in the church. And one of the things we need to understand is that unity is not something that we create. We cannot create unity. We cannot create peace. But we can maintain it. You see, unity in a church or peace in a church is created by God himself. When God has saved us and made us his own, he has established a certain kind of unity inside the church that we cannot do. And so like in the church in Ephesus, for example, you're going to have different types of people from different types of backgrounds who Paul is writing to. You're going to have those Christians that that are Jewish culturally who converted from following the teachings of Judaism to following Christ as the Messiah promised. And then you're going to have Gentiles who were following all sorts of pagan gods, trusting those things and doing those things that go with that, that have converted from that and are trusting Christ now. And so you have people from different backgrounds, different ideas, different ways of growing up, and they're all coming together to be one in Christ. And when that happens, you might have different types of conflict that come up. Uh, We read about some of the conflicts that you see in the early church throughout the pages of the New Testament. You would have some that believe that you, to be a good Christian, you had to eat only vegetables and not any meat. And you had some that were like, well, you can eat meat. And then you had others that would say, well, you had to observe all these holy days and others that would say you don't have to observe these certain holy days Uh, to put in more into our context to kind of help us understand a little bit more of what they were dealing with. It would be like you have a group of Christians that say you should celebrate and can celebrate Christmas and another group of Christians that say you shouldn't celebrate Christmas. Or you should celebrate Easter Resurrection Day or you shouldn't celebrate Easter or Resurrection Day. And so that's kind of puts it kind of in more of a modern context for us to understand the different types of conflict that may have arose in the church. And so Paul's addressing all sorts of different conflicts and offenses that may rise up in the church and he's urging them, the Christians there, to strive for unity in their church. And so what we're going to do to to look at this passage, we're really going to ask two questions of this passage. Uh, The first question we're going to ask is, how are we united to one another by the gospel? How are we united to one another by the gospel? And then we're going to ask the passage in the God's word, how do we maintain the unity that we have? So how are we united together and how are we going to maintain the unity that we have? And so first question we're going to dive into is how are we united with one another by the gospel? How is it that all these people from all these different backgrounds, ideas, political persuasions, opinions, how is it that we can come together as one in the gospel and still stand united in Christ? Well, as you look in this passage and as we look through verses four through six, we're going to see that there are seven theological foundations that drive our unity that tell us how God has united us. So starting there in verse four, we we see that Paul says there is one body. And you'll notice as you go through four through six, it says one this, one that, one this over and over and over again, just trying to drive home the point that we are one. And so the first thing we see there is that we are one body. And the idea of body there, what, what Paul's talking about is the church. We are one body, the body of Christ. The church and throughout the New Testament, the the church was described as a body of Christ. And now what I believe Paul's talking about here is not necessarily just the local church, but, but all Christians of all times are united into the body of Christ. And in the local church, we're just a representation of that larger body. But yes, we are united also together in one body in the church also. And so we are united together in the body of Christ. And we'll see a little bit later that Christ is the head of that body. But we're united together in the church under one body. And so if we're united in the body of Christ, how then could we look down on our neighbor who is also a Christian within our fellowship, within our church? How many times can you have your left hand tell your ear, I hate you ear! I'm going to rip you off? That wouldn't make sense, would it? Well, that's the same way of if we look at our neighbor in the church and we're so irritated with them, we want to cut them off from our life just because it's something they, they, they do or think or say. Now, obviously, this is going to be referring to things that are that are not essential to the truth of the gospel. OK, we're united in these things, but there are going to be divisions. And we'll talk about that later. But on the important things, we are united in one body in Christ. And so we're we're united in one body, but we're also united in one spirit. He tells us also there in verse four and one spirit and by spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God. We're united in that spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells each of us as believers, as believers who have trusted Christ and follow Christ. We have the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us and that in itself unites us together. But the Holy Spirit is also the Holy Spirit of God also is the one who has applied to us the salvation that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. And so each and every one of us, we have been called by God, called by the Holy Spirit to follow Him. He has worked faith in us through His spirit, by His word, and He has transformed us and made us and given us a new heart. I think of Titus three verse five. It says he saved us, talking about God, not because of the works we've done in righteousness. In other words, not because of the good stuff we, that we did to pay for it. We didn't do anything to pay for it. But he says that it was according to his own mercy, God's own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so this one spirit that we share in as the body of Christ that we have inside of us, the same Holy Spirit inside of me is the same Holy Spirit inside of each of you that are followers of Christ. And that Holy Spirit is the one who has secured us into the body of Christ together. That Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God that helps us to understand His Word. It's the Spirit of God that made us new in Him and gave us a new heart with new desires who gives us faith and strengthens our faith. And we are united in that Holy Spirit. But we're not just united in the body and the spirit. I want you to notice we're also there in verse four, united to one hope. Notice how it says there, verse four, as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And what is that hope? That hope, I believe, is talking about the eternal life. That we have with God being able to glorify him and enjoy him forever together as one. And so we have that one hope. Uh, But let's talk about hope for a second. Uh, We've said this before, but we'll say it again. Christian hope is different from the world's hope. The world's hope is wishful thinking. I hope that the ice doesn't get too bad. I hope that my power comes on soon. I hope that this food tastes good. I hope that Stephen doesn't preach for an hour and a half today wishful thinking. But Christian hope is confident expectation. We are not wishfully thinking that something might happen. We are confident that it is going to happen. And so we are shared and united together in that one hope, that hope of eternal life with God forever, that hope that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ that nothing can take us out of his hand, that we will be with him forever and ever into all eternity. And in the end, we win because he has already won. And so we stand together in one hope, united in one hope. But we also are united under one Lord. There are verse five, we have one Lord and that Lord is none other than Jesus Christ himself, the son of God. Uh, We read about in the first part of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one, where we're told that, (coughs) excuse me, where God has made us into uh, his own people. He's adopted us into the family. We've been made uh, his children. And in verse 19 of chapter one, it talks about the power that is at work in us. From God, in verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. He's talking about Jesus, how great Jesus is, how much authority he has, how, uh, how powerful that Jesus is. And he goes and he says in verse 22, and he put all things under his feet, all things And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus is the head of the church or the Lord of the church. And Lord simply just means master, king. And so Jesus is king. He is Lord. He is in charge and we are united together under him as our Lord, Savior and King. So what does that mean for us? That means that it doesn't matter how long you've been in a church, what your last name is, how many, uh, how much money you give. If you're the pastor or not the pastor, you're not in charge. And I'm not in charge. None of us are in charge. But you know who is in charge? God. And so while we may have differences of opinions on different things and how things should be done, we do have one source that we go to to settle those disputes and settle those, those uh um, those conflicts. And who is the one we turn to? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has given us his word that we may know what we believe and how we should live and how we should how we should function. And so all matters of belief, all matters of teaching, all conflicts, all offenses, we can look to the Lord and ask ourselves, what does Jesus say about this? And then it's settled. Uh, Sometimes you'll see in a bumper sticker, the Bible says it; I believe it, that settles it. You can take out part of it and it'll make it true. It doesn't matter if we believe it or not. If the Bible says it, if God says it, what does that mean? It settles it. And so we have Jesus as our Lord and Savior who is the head of the church. And so I'm not in charge. You're not in charge. Ultimately, God is the one who is in charge. And we together, working together, looking at the word, seek to know and in prayer, seek to know what his will is for our church as he is our head. And so we're united under one body, we're united under one spirit, united under one hope, that our, our eternal life, united under one Lord, which is Jesus Christ. But we're also united, we see there, under one faith. One faith, which we see there in verse five. And the idea of faith there, yes, it's going to be talking about our our confidence that we have in the gospel, our hope that we have there. Uh, but what I believe Paul's talking about here is not just our belief, our faith that saves us, but all the true foundational beliefs that the Bible teaches that we're united under one faith, one teaching, one set of foundational beliefs, what we believe to be true from the Bible. And there are those things that we believe that are essential. And there are those things that we believe that are not essential. And so if you ever want to know what our church as a whole believes that is essential uh, you can look back there. We have copies of our doctrinal statement, or you can look on our website, freestonebaptist.com. Click on beliefs and you can read our doctrinal statement and see what it is that we hold to be essential in matters of life and in matters of doctrine. <coughs> but other than those things, there's there's liberty there to have disagreements, to have Uh, where you not not agree on this thing or that thing, but on the essential matters, we are under one faith, one set of beliefs in which we hold together as true. And that is one of the things that unifies us and sets us apart from other religions, sets us apart even potentially from other uh, Christians or churches is, is based on what we believe and what we hold to be true. Um, Think about all the different denominations. Now, I believe that Baptists are not the only ones that are going to be in heaven. Praise God, because I have many friends that are not Baptists that are going to end up in heaven and be with God because they serve him faithfully. But most importantly, because they trust him as Lord and Savior of all. And so we need to understand that that the body of Christ represents not just Baptists, but people from all sorts of denominations that trust and follow Christ as Lord and Savior. That trust that he has given himself to forgive them of their sins. If they trust that, if they believe that, then we know that they are truly children of God. But what sets one church apart from another church? A lot of times it's their faith, what they believe and hold as essential. And as a local body here at Freestone, we hold certain things to be essential to the faith. And those things can be found, like I said, on our doctrinal statement. But some of those things include God. Like We believe God is true. He is one God that exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We believe that we're not saved by our works. We're saved by the work of Christ on the cross. And that's through our faith, by his grace alone. Nothing we do, all that God has done. Uh, We believe that the Bible is the word of God, that it's not created by man ultimately, but that it is created by God and it is our authority. We believe it to be true, that every part of it is true. There are no errors, there's no falsehood. It is the word of God. Those are just some of the things that we hold to be essential as believers that gather together here at Freestone. And so we're united under one faith together. But we're not just united under one faith, we're united Under one baptism, united under one baptism. Now, I'm not saying here, I don't think this is talking about physical baptism here, Uh, because physical baptism ultimately is an outward sign of what God has already done inside you. It's an outward sign of what God has already done inside of us. And so when Paul talks about baptism here, the one baptism that we share, I believe he's talking about the spiritual rebirth, being born again. And I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. One, because we see that uh, a lot of times in the scripture, every time you see that when a person was baptized, it was after what? After they trusted Christ and followed Christ. And so after they followed Christ and trusted Christ, they were baptized. And that was an outward sign of what God had already done inside of them. Uh, In John, in chapter three, we see that Nicodemus, he goes to Jesus and Jesus looks at him and says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And that sounds really confusing. So, cause like, you know, I'm 30. How can I, you know, be born again? That doesn't make sense. Nicodemus was thinking the same thing. How can I be born again? How can I go into my mother's womb and come out as a child again? How does that even work? And Jesus is like, no, no, you're not understanding He says, Unless you have been born of the Spirit, you will never see the kingdom of God. He's like, Well, how does that even happen? And Jesus is like, Well, no, you see the wind, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, but you know it's there. The same is true of everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. In other words, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, comes to us, convinces us of our sin and our guilt, shows us the need that we need for Christ, gives us the faith to believe. And we trust Christ and we're born again by the Spirit of God. And so that baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit is talking about this, the rebirth, being born again, being made new, given a new heart. And we share in that one baptism as believers. Why is that important? Because if we say that that baptism is talking about physical baptism, then we are saying we are not united with people who do not baptize By immersion after faith. I believe that's the correct way to baptize. Is after you you profess faith in Christ. You're baptized in, in water being dunked. And then lifted up to symbolize being united with the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. But surely there are believers that sincerely follow Christ. Who have not been scripturally baptized. And yet they still follow Christ. And so we are united in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what we're talking about there, when we say baptism of the Holy Spirit, I feel like we need to talk about this part too, uh, because I know that sometimes you'll have other Christians that go around and they'll talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, meaning that you start speaking in tongues and all these different things. And that's not what we're talking about here. Um, What we're talking about here is literally being born again. Being born again. And I believe when the Bible talks about being baptized in the Holy Spirit, that's what it's talking about. Being born again. Once you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You don't have to try to get the Holy Spirit to come to you a second time. He's there. He's there. God's there with you through his spirit. And so we're united in that baptism. And we're united also under one father who is in all and through all and to all. Right there in verse 6. One God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We're united under one father. You see, we've all sinned against that father. We've all sinned against God, son, Holy Spirit. All of us are left without any hope in the world. And yet... In the midst of our sin, we read about in Ephesians 1 that despite our sin, before God ever created anything, that the father chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then the father sent his son to pay for our salvation on the cross. And then he sent his spirit to apply that salvation to our life. And so the father God that we serve, it's a God, God, the father who purposed our salvation planned our salvation and executed our salvation for us because we could not do it on our own. We were left without any hope in the world, but God came down and he set us free by the blood of Christ. And if we believe that we're united together with him and have been adopted into his family, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language have been united as one. And we have one father and that father is God. And sometimes when we talk about God as Father, that can be complicated because some of us may not have had a good Father. And so when you think of Father and God as Father, you might cringe a little bit. You might get a little worried or a little concerned because your, your view of Father is not a view of a patient, kind, loving man, but maybe rather an angry man who you're scared of. And that is not how God is. God is gentle, He is kind. And he is loving toward all of his children. And so God as our father is the best father any of us could ever ask for. He will never leave us. His patience does not wear thin against us. If we are in Christ, he is not angry at us because Christ has already paid for our sin on the cross. And so are we united together under one father and his name is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so all of those things are what unites us in the gospel, in the church. The body, we're in one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. That is what we're united in. And that is what, in a lot of summary of what we hold as essential. And that is why, like, it doesn't matter where we are in life, our age, our gender, male or female, it doesn't matter. We are one in Christ because we have been united with Christ. We don't create the unity. God has already created that unity. And so what I want to ask of you this morning is is simply this. Do you trust Christ? Do you follow Christ? Have you been united with Christ? And if not, what keeps you from just turning to him today and laying it all at his feet and trusting him? And if you are a follower of Christ, what I want to ask you is this. What is it that keeps you separated from other Christians in your church and in your community? And ask yourself, are those things, things that are essential? I want you to ask yourself, next time you get offended, instead of, just focusing on those things that you're different in, focus on the ways that you are together in Christ, that you have been united in Christ. Focus on those things and then have, you can have respectful conversations about the Bible and see if you both can come to an agreement on what the Bible says, no matter whether it, what it is, whether it's the type of music that we have in church, What you wear to church, what you want to eat, what you want to drink, whatever it is. You can have a conversation about those things, looking at God's word together. Clinging to the things that we have already been united in. But in order to answer the second question, how do we maintain unity in the church, knowing that we have been united? You'll have to come back next week. But this week, I want us to focus on how are we united with one another by the gospel? And you can look at these verses and remember these things. Next time we have conflict that arises between us and between others, ask ourselves, okay, how are we united? And think through the things we've talked about. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. If those things are the things that unite us, man, there's not much that can separate us beyond those things. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have united us together in the gospel, uh, that these things that you have done for us are so important, not only for our life and our eternal life, but also for the life and eternal life of our neighbor and our brother and our sister. And so, Lord, we pray that you will help us not let trivial things divide us. Father, that, that we would cling to what is true, and what is honorable and what is just, namely the gospel and what flows from that in Christ. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our faith, grow our love, that we may show the realities of you throughout the world around us. And Father, we ultimately, we just want to glorify you in all that we do. So Father, we come together as one body, united together, praising you and asking you that you will continue to help us remember how we are united And help us to strive to maintain that unity that you have given us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.